welcome to the Psychom JC podcast, your one-stop shop for effective and impactful science communication approaches. Psychom JC is sponsored by Captive Touch, a company offering consulting and training for strategic science communication. At Psychom JC, we aim to help scientists integrate findings from the latest evidence-based research in social sciences and education into their outreach efforts. We curate, summarize and discuss research studies and their applications to real communication contexts in a way that scientists can easily implement. Today we have behind the mics from uh, the team, Sherry, Melissa, Maria and me, Nevena. Heather is unfortunately away, but she'll be joining us next time. Hi, everyone. Hi. Hello. How's everyone Hi. doing? Good, <laughs> thank you. Glad to hear. Really, really great. I'm actually saying hello from Ukraine. I'm usually in Los Angeles. So, ah, hello. Awesome. <laughs> so now we're 50-50 spread across the, the two continents. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I feel so much less alone right now, Maria. Thank you. Awesome. Uh, so today we're gathered here to talk about a very interesting topic that we covered in our previous, well, latest Twitter chat that was just a couple of days ago. And that was actually voted by the followers and that was covered a very sore topic in, in specifically speaking about predatory journals. Yeah, Melissa, you hosted the Twitter chat. So how about you introduce us briefly to that topic? Yes. Um, so this this article is a subject that um, while it's not it's not based on archaeology or anthropology, um, which is the subjects that I'm used to, I found it very important to discuss uh, the the concept of predatory journals because um, the the internet has changed how we as academics and researchers and scholars change how we get that information. And this is an issue that has uh, become a growing concern for, for every field of, of study. Um, and this, this article focuses specifically on biomedical journals, but I feel that the research that was put into it can be applied to any field um, of study. And so what what uh, this basically talks about is how the themes or the characteristics of predatory journals um, and what to look for when you are trying to find information for research, uh, because this is important for not just scientific research, but scientific progress and how we build off of each other's knowledge to move forward. Yeah, I believe it's a topic that is very close to each one of us. I don't think I've met a scientist who has ever published a single article that afterwards hasn't received a ton of spam invitations to all the most random journals, including ones that have absolutely nothing to do with your field of research and yes, yes. I have to admit they some of them look very <laughs> tempting to publish in because we all know the incredibly high for some people especially if you don't really have uh, grants available but you're working on public money some of them have very uh, tempting publication fees because they're usually a couple of times lower than the usual uh, well-recognized publishing houses yes so it happened to me several times that colleagues would just bounce around emails asking, hey, do you know if that's a predatory journal or if it's actually for real because it can be used right. for my own publication? So <laughs> what is your experience? Oh, gosh, uh, Maria, I was just thinking about this a lot this year because a year ago I published one of my articles, right? I felt 
I felt like it was great to include my true email address that's affiliated with my current university, and I've regretted it every day ever since because <laughs> I literally every day I get at least four emails inviting me. They're citing my stuff, you know. They know what I've got. Sure, they're trying to use that as really read it and you're amazing. And by the way, give us email address of your other course because we really want to call them him too. There was a time where I emailed it to him and said, Hey, what is going on? Are this pe real people? Because you know what? There were no mistakes, it sounded legit. Sometimes it gets really good, you know. Mm -hmm. So I just feel like I waste time sometimes trying to look through this email, it's terrible. <laughs> No, it is. And um, I even remember in college um, just trying to, because I didn't know that there was a term for predatory journals. I just knew that there were quality journals to to, to work with and then the really bad ones um, and looking through the, the themes and the characteristics of, you know, what makes a potential predatory journal. I was like, oh my God, like, I, I've dealt with this, like I think every single person has dealt with this if they're writing a paper or something. And because um, it's something that we, we all deal with, whether we are publishing or researching, it affects all of us. So it is important to, 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 find, um, to, to find, you know, just hints as to if it is a legitimate journal article or journal itself and, and what, what makes a potential predatory journal. So I, I thought that this was um, a wonderful, very important, very topical subject to discuss. And I'm just so glad that I, I got to do that. Yeah, for me, I've been, this is Sherry, I've been away from scientific publishing in a while because I haven't worked in a lab in a while. So I didn't, wasn't really aware of this, but I follow a virologist on Facebook and he started posting about it and I couldn't believe my ears. And I teach at a, a I'm a college professor and one of the things that we do is ask students to do research papers, some of them um, write papers, some of them create posters, and it just dawned on to me that it's so important to include as part of the instruction an ability to tell the difference between bad and good journals. Has it happened to you, Sherry, ever that someone with an assignment like this actually accident <laughs> came across a, an article like this from a, from a predatory journal? What I see mostly, like I said, I wasn't aware of it, so I, it's um, very fairly recently that I learned about it. But one big issue with um, student assignments is that they um, quite often cite blogs that are not legitimate. So that, that's a bigger problem. But um, we tell students in, a, in the education industry very often to to go to Google Scholar and search and Medline. And as we discussed, these are uh, predatory publishers. Papers are indexed in those databases. So now it makes me, you know, it's, it's more urgent to show students how to tell the difference. Mm -hmm. uh, this is Maria. I just have a really quick uh, comment sure. because I recently have been a graduate student and I, told, I said this uh, during the Twitter chat. When I was re researching uh, on articles on healthy eating in Eastern Europe, I was trying to find something from this part of the world. You know, I came across things that looked legit. They were not on any list as anything suspicious, but I was reading the literature. It was all in English, by the way. There were so many issues and the things that were red flags to me. I couldn't tell if it was a journal that was strange or it was the actual science that was poor, that was being published about. So I just dropped them and I didn't even use them 
And I don't know, maybe I could have used some of the things, maybe they were legit, maybe they were great science. I have no idea. I had no idea how to evaluate it. So it really affects me and I just did not use any of that research. Tell us, Melissa, how do we recognize predatory journals according to that article? Oh, yes. I'm, I'm so glad that we got to... Uh we get to discuss this. Um, so one of the, one of the things um, that I, I loved about the article is that, um, so the whole, the goal of, of the research was to just find overall themes that match, you know, potential predatory journals. And so the researchers uh, were able to, to come up with the 13 characteristics of, of a predatory journal. And so, and, and some of these are really obvious, but it's also, um, important to just take these into account when you're doing research, whether it is for a paper or for, um, for you know, a scholarly endeavor or any kind of, of study that you're working on, um, because this is how scientific progress is made. And so the 13 characteristics, um, I tried to summarize them as best I can. Um, because there's so many, um, but really the first one is the for for these particular journals, biomedical journals. Um, the scope of interest includes biomedical and non-biomedical topics. Um, the second is you know the website contains spelling and grammar errors, which you know is unappealing and off-putting, but it's also kind of a red flag because that means that they're not you know looking over and and just you know editing and uh, and and correcting to death at all of the everything. Um, the third is um, images are fuzzy or unauthorized, so they, they didn't uh, get the high quality resolution uh, images that we expect. Um, uh, the homepage language targets the authors. Um, the index Copernicus value is promoted on the website. Um, it lacks uh, any description of manuscript handling. Um, and it is just uh, the, the list, the list continues to go on. <laughs> Um, but these these are things that are very uh, important for everyone to to look into. There's also um, you know the promise that uh, of rapid publication, and so it's not going to be meticulously researched and edited and and checked up uh, because you know their their whole their whole thing is to create. Um, a cheap and quick way to publish, which is very appealing to people who do not have a, either a lot of experience with uh, academic publishing or um, they, they don't see the value in that meticulous uh, editing process. There's also uh, no retraction policy information on whether or how the journal content um, is digitally preserved that they, they don't give any detail on that. And this is this is the one thing probably the most important because one of the biggest issues for these predatory journals is that they are not documenting, they're not indexing the research. And what that means is, is that they will publish the research, but future researchers can't go back to find that. And that is not how scientific progress is made. And then, you know, the, there's also, just to close up, the, the article processing or publication charge is very low, just to make it appealing to, to, publishing, uh, to publishing researchers. Journals are claiming to be open access, either retain the copyright of the published research or they, they don't mention the copyright at all. And then finally, I think one of the things that's most obvious is uh, the contact email is not professional and usually ends with like at Gmail or at Yahoo.com. 
It, it's very interesting because some of these indeed, as, as uh, Maria said as well, are very obvious, but some are quite tricky because right now I work in the field of nutrition science and I know for several journals that indeed have ultra fast processing times to from the moment you submit an article to the moment that you get your decision to the moment that the article is actually published online. Yes. And it was very strange originally because for me that was naturally a, a weird thing because I know how long it takes for a reviewer, especially because most of the times reviewers are not even paid, including for the high ranking real, so to speak, journals. Mm-hmm. So they're doing that out of their goodwill. Um, so I was very surprised to find out <laughs> that some <laughs> legit journals as well are super fast to, to process uh-huh. articles. So I was myself asking people around, I was like, are you sure that this is a real journal? Because I was, <laughs> yeah. I was new to the field when I started working in the place that I do now. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously didn't know that well the the different journals for that particular field, and they're like, yeah, that's a that's one of the best journals in the field. I'm like, okay, fair enough. So yeah, yeah. Some, some are really tricky to 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 recognize. So Maria, just quickly, to me, the tricky thing was about price, right? We know they charge, but not as much, so it's really appealing. Well, I've seen plenty that don't charge, and that is not necessarily not a red flag because they might not charge you. Maybe they really want your high quality work so they could get more people to buy in and then pay also. So they can be not charging you and still be predatory and that's kind of scary. Yeah, and in a way, if you're coming from a place where um, when you publish a book, you realize how much, how uh, costly it is to publish a quality type of work, I'm not surprised that they can charge so little Um, because when you do not hire copy editors and scientific editors and you don't have to put resources into getting reviewers, probably most of that $150 or something that they get goes into their pocket or paying their low-paid call center people. Not surprising that it's so cheap. But do you think that um, as researchers um, that it should be important to at least when when we're in college or when we are, you know, taking on these academic endeavors to either have um, a list or a pamphlet or any information from, you know, just to just to be able to to find uh clues as to whether or not this is a legitimate source that you're using for research. Um, what does everybody think about that? Mm-hmm. Definitely should be part of uh, education at any level, undergraduate, graduate school. It should We should also be talking to just non-academics about this because mm-hmm. we always tell the non-expert audience, oh, you should find a, is it published? Like we always tout the robustness of scientific publications, so they can go and find one of these um, not so legitimate journals and say, "See, here's a paper I show you that GMOs cause cancer or something." Yeah. <laughs> No, it's true. And to be honest, I haven't seen any part of the educational plan for college or even before that students that actually includes recognizing that type of journals. Neither if we actually broaden a little bit the topic about conferences, because there are a lot of those as well. But it really comes around with doing what you preach because we can't really expect from people to recognize bad science if we ourselves are not 
putting the effort to recognize bad publishing exactly. ourselves. Yeah. Sherry, I know that you shared some other uh, tools that were helpful in this regard. Can you yeah, give us Maria some actually, Yeah, Maria shared a really good resource and she can tell us a little yeah. bit more about it later. And then, and then there's also, um, I found this uh, website called thinkcheck.submit.org and thinkcheck. Uh, attend.org. So these are for recognizing predatory journals and predatory conferences. And Maria, you want to tell us more about the journal evaluation yeah. tool? But yeah, uh, I was really excited to see this tool, and it was uh, done by uh, people at Loyola Marymount University, where I work right now. So that was pretty cool. It's free. You can find it. It's called Journal Evaluation Tool, and it's like a worksheet where you evaluate a journal on a number of characteristics. And you use like a good fair poor scale, right? And then you come up with a final score that helps you decide, okay, is this probably predatory or not? And it's a pretty lengthy tool. There are 16 aspects of the journal and the publisher that you rate. And there's like examples of how you rate it and then how to interpret the last score. So it's, it's pretty, uh, you know, involving. It's uh, longer than like going to a list online and searching there. But it's mm -hmm. very detailed and it makes you really think through all the aspects of like what it takes to publish in a legitimate journal. Yeah. Yes. So. And which which is great. Um, and another thing that I I wanted to elaborate on uh, in the Twitter chat, but was not able to, was the discussion of Beale's list. And this was this was what really kind of kickstarted the 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 research. And this was kind of the guide that that the researchers used uh, when looking for like potential predatory journals. Because Beale's list, and I I made I made one little like bullet point about it. I wish I could have talked about the whole thing because it does have a very interesting history. But this was the original list predatory open access publishers that was maintained by Jeffrey Beal, who was a librarian for the University of Colorado. I was kind of afraid of getting into it because he was dealing with a lot of, um, he was being threatened with defamation lawsuits. Um, and he, he actually uh, deactivated the blog and the list in January of 2017. But there is the original list, I actually found a link to his um, original list of potential predatory journals that I would love to have a link to, but it really does allow us to see, get a, a great example of what these these predatory journals, these predatory article, articles can look like. And I think that it is important to make sure that his his research and his endeavors do get um, a bit a bit of attention because his method of of looking into these these journals uh, was kind of the foundation of what the the researchers for this article used uh, when when finding these themes so I think it's very important to uh, to, to shed light on that what else have been mentioned that you, you kind of took away as a take-home message during the Twitter chat when it comes to the, the discussion, um, I think that, that Sherry and uh, Maria had some great details about, um, you know, just what what makes these potential predatory journals um, appealing for young scholars and um, even somebody who, you know, would be quote unquote inexperienced. There was one thing that uh, that Maria said that was, you know, a regular open access journal. Um, you know, it's it it takes about a thousand dollars and and up to publish. So grad students and early career academics be 
would be excited and and feel that you know like this this was a good opportunity for them but it could actually have a negative impact on their career publishing from a non-reliable source what i wanted to really emphasize uh during the chat was why this is an issue why does this matter why is this important while the list is a good starting point it's not sensitive enough to to detect all of these predatory journals there are still some that can be predatory that don't fit all of these red flags or there's still some things that they haven't been able to discuss because it also does it does depend on the subject matter if it's anthropology it's different if it's sociology if it's chemistry all of these different subjects they're, they're, it's different for every field of study but another thing is the individuals who are involved in this journal or if they are on the board or anything like that it can compromise you know the reputation of this individual and you know the universities and the associations that they're a part of the predatory journals don't index anything. They don't index um, in, a, in the appropriate database. Uh, one line that was really important to me in the research was that, you know, that the majority of these predatory journals indicated being indexed by Google Scholar. And Google Scholar is not an indexing database. Google does not search pre-selected journals or anything. I mean, it is a searching tool. It is not a documentation or an indexing tool. And that is a big problem because um, as researchers, we build off the knowledge and the information gathered by others. And so that's how scientific research is done. But it is important for all of us, uh, whether we are gathering the information or translating it for the public to take this into account and to really consider um, that this can compromise uh, can compromise the research. I just had a question uh, about the fact that you've been mentioning about uh, the individuals involved in the uh, those so-called journals and, and their boards. Mm -hmm. What I was wondering is, because I remember not too long ago, there was, for the love of my life, I wouldn't remember his name, but there was a person who created essentially his own scientific non-peer-reviewed journal just so he would be able to publish his own so-called research out of his backyard basically mm -hmm. it was something to do with with the uh, environment and ecology but wow. um, what I was wondering is have those types of journals been included in that article that we covered in the twitter chat or were there seen as a different type of non-peer-reviewed publications? Um, that's actually a, a really good question. And I don't think that a self-published article was was used in this. Um, the research that, the, the method, the design of the, the cross-sectional study was that they had uh, randomly selected 100 articles within each of these three groups that they, they were researching, which was um, potential predatory journals, the presumed legitimate open access journals, and uh, subscription-based journals. Uh, there was no description on whether there was, you know, a, a self-starting or like an independent journal, open access journal base. Um, but I think that that would be, that, that's another thing that, you know, because this, this research, this research paper only scratches the surface of, of this problem. And I think that that in particular, the subject you're talking about should definitely be explored a little more because um, it goes so well beyond these three types of journals and it's only going to become more and more uh, eclectic as time goes on because as, as our methods of accessing information change, um, our methods of getting information out there change as well. What about Cherry and Maria? Do you have other takeaways from yeah. the Twitter chat? 
I was, uh, Sherry knows that I've been thinking a little bit about this. So after the chat, I was actually thinking not so much about good research ending up in these terrible journals and how it affects mm. us in academia, but I was thinking about the poor work that finds its way to get published in this less rigorous way and people might take it seriously. So I was thinking about uh, the infamous study or red study on GMO maize and cancer. Uh, it first got published in a legit journal and then it got retracted because so many people and scientists were writing and criticizing the methods and showing that there were a lot of problems. So it got retracted. People were still using it as a legitimate source, comparing it to actual rigorous high quality science. But then something funny happens as somebody plagiarizes that work and publishes it again in a non-peer-reviewed journal, so in another predatory journal. So this is like some kind of crazy vicious cycle of this kind of data getting out there, getting republished in all sorts of ways, and people take that and they, you know, make claims based on that and um, make it on the same level as rigorous research. So that's really concerning to me in terms of poor quality work finding its way out there because these journals do have more relaxed standards and they don't have peer review and all these things, you know. And now we have to deal with it because the damage is done. Exactly. Once it yes. gets published and gets mentioned by so-called, um, I don't know, anti-GMO and quote-unquote natural, natural right. people, mm -hmm. then it becomes viral. And actually, I had a student who presented um, in one of my classes about... Um, about GMOs and how bad they are and so on and so forth. And she ended up referencing this, this very same paper. Um, so it's, it's a huge issue. And that's why I think we need to, um, uh, we need to talk about it more. It means to be one of our priorities in, uh, in science communication to talk about these uh, this issue. I mean, it's nice. We should all learn how to explain our, uh, our own science, do storytelling, but this is another menace in the fight against yeah. misinformation that we need to address. Yeah, and earlier you mentioned how, you know, maybe this should be something undergraduate and graduate degrees discuss. And I was thinking back to my PhD degree. I've never talked about this with anyone until I had to publish and I had to feel really awkward telling my mentor, like, I don't know what I'm doing. Can you help me? <laughs> because nobody ever talked about it. And look at this paper. Even they can draw a clear line. This is complicated. You can't do it on your own, right? They call the, their categories, if you remember, are potentially predatory or presumed legitimate. So even they can define this clearly, right? Yes. So it takes a village. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, and people can start um, scientifically sound institutions by themselves, people who are in the, uh, you know, alternative health industry, uh, they can do their own research. This guy, Mike Adams, who is behind the um, infamous, what is, what is it called? Uh, he has a website. Oh, uh, naturalnews.com. <laughs> Natural News, yeah, and he always yeah. takes a picture, whenever he takes a records a video or take a picture of himself, he shows himself in the, and the background is in a lab. So, right. there are, and this is so similar to what happened in the climate change industry where these uh, lobbyists for the oil industry and those who were climate change deniers and still are, they established these scientifically sounding institutions 
and they published opinion pieces and papers, things like that. And it sounded like it's coming from this really legitimate um, institution of higher learning. Uh, so if now they have, through these predatory <laughs> journals, these similar institutions can have a place to say, oh, look, we have a published paper, that, that becomes a huge, huge problem. It does, yes. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, you know, when the dissertations come to me, I almost always assume they're predatory because they sound kind of crazy and they really praise me. So, you know, you can pick up on that. You can see their uh, non-affiliated emails and you can go through your list. What was really tough for me is going out there to find journals to publish in myself when they're not reaching out to me. And I still don't know the best way uh, to go about it because at some point you might not be aiming at the highest, most famous journals, right? I still right. want to reach in the journal, but I'm not going for the best. But that's when I start being, uh oh, I started getting nervous. Am I going too low? Is this predatory now? Am I going to be sorry for this? And that's when I guess I'm trying to figure out how am I going to go about this, guys? What are you going to do next time? You might want to publish or make sure a journal is legit. Scientific publishing is a hard work, as if science wasn't hard enough on itself. Oh, yeah. Yes, I mean, it's one thing to uh, conduct the research, but then the publishing of the research uh, becomes just as much of an endeavor <laughs> because then you have to think, okay, so now that I have all this information, I have to get it out. Now I have to make sure I put it in the right journal and that, you know, it's, it's indexed. And so it just becomes, it's becoming another challenge <laughs> as if yeah. conducting research getting the funding for the research wasn't hard enough already so what's the call to action for the SciComm community with regards to this in SciComm, what needs to be discussed is what what to look out for in a predatory journal or really when you are publishing the information um, what what are some of the red flags what are the things that you can look for when it comes to um, you know a publishing opportunity because you want that research to be indexed you want it to be easily accessible and you want it to uh, be able to uh, be reached to future generations our call to action should be uh, to really discuss not just our not just you know the the themes of a predatory journal, but our experiences with a predatory journal um, and our experiences uh, reading them and trying to find um, just just trying to make sure that we discuss this because um, once the discussion gets started, then we you know people who are just getting into this just into the ac academia um, and scholarly research can say, oh okay, so this is what this is what I should be looking for. This is what I should watch out for when I'm when I'm at that point. Um, and then you know even people who are experienced in this might learn something new along the way. Yeah, and I, I also think that uh, we should be as part of our science communication with the general non-expert public, there should be warnings about journals like this. People yeah. need to be aware of it. Yes, uh, and I was thinking about that. You know, when we first picked the topic, I almost thought, oh, it's going to be obvious to everyone. You know, we can always spot a funny email, you know, that doesn't look like, an, you know, it's written in proper English. But then I realized, no, no, this is a really big deal. None of us quite know how to deal with it. Just now I was Googling and I found that, you know, the people are evolving fast. There's this Kind of new approach of waiting for some legit uh, domain to expire to take it over and then sound more legit to be sound like them. I don't even know what that's all about, but apparently they're getting more crafty. So I don't think it's that easy to deal with this, and we really need to talk about it. You know, we need to be educating each other on that. Um, yeah, that's why. <laughs>
So basically yeah. stay vigilant at any point of your research and publishing. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> that yeah. was very helpful. I have to admit that this chat has been surprisingly uh, informing for myself as well now that I, I work with other people and publishing their work too. Yeah, what what can we do at PsychomJC to keep right. this off of people's minds? Well, uh, yeah, I've been thinking about that too, right? Yeah, maybe we need to we need a page on our website, or maybe I was thinking. I mean, it, things doing things always takes resources, and knowing that we're all full timers and then we're doing this on the side, it's hard to think of something to do but maybe we have to put our thinking caps on and if our <laughs> listeners have any ideas we'd love to hear it yes absolutely well yeah. that twitter chat in this podcast already a good start so mm-hmm. <laughs> we can take it from here absolutely oh. I think that was all the time we had today to cover the Twitter chat, but I would very much uh, invite our listeners and our followers who might have missed the chat itself to go back to Twitter and check out our moments as well. Get back also to our website, www.psychomjc.org to get in touch, to get to know more about us, to get updated about things that we're doing and also to drop us a message or indeed, as Sherry mentioned, suggest a way that we actively start dealing together with predatory journals, among other problems of scientific publishing. And I would like to really thank a lot all the the co-hosts today. And Sherry, I think we already have an announcement for our June Twitter chat. Yes, the June Twitter chat coincides with the Pride Month, and our chat will be hosted by Heather, who's not here today. Uh, She's going to be leading a discussion about equity for the LGBTQ community in scientific institutions, and we have a guest who is Tina Martineau. She's one of the two first place winners for the 2019 State Your Mission Challenge. Uh, It is going to take place on June 25th, uh, 6 p.m. Pacific time. And I can't wait for this talk because it's a very, very important topic. So make sure to follow us on Twitter at Psychom underscore JC to receive the updates for the specific publications that will be covered during uh, this and other upcoming Twitter chats. And again, also updates about our activities. Uh, you can also view the most interesting tweets, as I said, in our Twitter moments from be- from previous Twitter chats and still respond because we check those and uh, there's never it's never too late to join one of our interesting topics and conversations and keep the discussions alive. Subscribe also to our newsletter to receive updates uh, for all our upcoming events, Twitter chats, podcast releases and summaries for some uh, uh, interesting psychomy topics that we write about. Uh, and to subscribe to the newsletter, go again to our website www.psychomjc.org. PsychomJC is sponsored by Captive Touch, a company offering consulting and training for strategic science communication. It is recorded by the PsychomJC team produced and edited by Mina Vena Christosva. Our music is composed by Musical Cocktail from Audio Jungle. Thank you for joining this ninth episode of the Psychom JC podcast. If you liked it, let us know and please share it with your friends, colleagues, family, your grandma, whoever you think might be interesting for. Till next time and stay nerdy.